In the 1982 episode, the Demons have turned things around. Barry Breen edges towards 300 games. The Swans start life in Sydney in the best possible way. And a captain and coach from a 1970s powerhouse both get their marching orders on the same week. And we will also get stuck into the 1981 draft last year, but all that more is coming up after us. It's the history of football we knows about And we want to expand what we know We'll become such intelligent gentry With every kick-to-kick show Beginning in the time 1870s Right through to the modern day Tune in for Timmy Coops and the Kazmaz To hear what they all have to say Welcome to the Kick to Kick podcast, the Australian Rules Football History podcast that takes a deep dive into the history of the league. We have no real qualifications to bring you this other than a thirst for knowledge, a few books, a desire to relive the past. My name's Tim, this is Charlie. Hello, hello. We're here to talk about the first part of 1982. Yes. So teams that finished 12th to 7th. Yes, we are certainly into it. And Timmy, I'm sitting across from you right now and you are wearing a fantastic WAFL t-shirt. AFLW. Yeah, AFLW, yep. season seven. Yep. All the teams. All the teams yeah, around it. it. Doesn't it look great? They got it at the final the other day. I went to the Melbourne Adelaide final. Oh, yeah. Last Friday. Who won that game? Demons. Yeah, they did. Dominated. Yeah. Looking very good. Um, so, 1982. We're, We're there. there. We're there. We're there. We talked a little bit about 1982 in our Sydney special, didn't we? Yes, we did. We did. But, uh, we get stuck into 82 yes. probably now and see how the Swans actually travel. Actually travel. Mm. It, playing out in Sydney, it's going to be an exciting time. Yeah, so, hello, listeners in. Get this, Charlie. Namibia. Fantastic. In Africa. Uh, India, Indonesia, Czech Republic, Iran, Hong Kong, uh, and Slovakia. Hello, those people. Yeah. Good to have you on board. Absolutely, it is. Um, we are going to get stuck into some history, I guess, to start with. The song I've chosen from 1982. It's a classic Australian song. Down Under by Men at Work. Beautiful. No- number one for six weeks. Um Shout out also to What About Me by Moving Pictures. Oh, great. So tell us some events. Alrighty. So, some things that happened in 1982. Another good year, Timmy. On the 24th of January, uh, we had the 49ers defeating the Bengals 26-21 to win their very first Super Bowl. Uh, I should say, and we've been doing this every time, we're talking about the Super Bowl in January, which is... For the 1981 season, so I might clarify that next okay. time. Yeah, and talk about you know. Yeah, that's how that's how it works. Yeah, but talk about the. I'll talk about the 1982 winner maybe. Yeah, anyway, I'll figure that out. Yeah, uh, on the 16th of May, we had the New York Islanders sweeping the Canucks, the Vancouver Canucks, in four games to win the 1982 Stanley Cup Finals in the hockey. On the 26th of May, we had Aston Villa winning the Euro Cup, beating Bayern Munich 1-0 after a 69th-minute goal by Peter Wyatt in Rotterdam. In June, we had the Lakers defeating the 76ers in six games to win the NBA Finals. On the 11th of June, in some non-sport news, we had... Uh, in... We had E.T., the extraterrestrial, released <laughs> in the United States. It became the biggest box office hit for the next 11 years. Wow. Massive. 
Uh, on the 11th of July, we had Italy beating West Germany 3-1 to win the FIFA World Cup in Spain. On the 17th of August, we had the very first compact discs produced in Germany. And later in the same year, we had uh, Sony releasing the first compact disc, personal compact disc player. Yeah, wunderbar. Um, on the 26th of September, we had the Parramatta Eels, the minor premiers, defe- defeating the Manly Warringah Sea Eagles 21-8 to win the 75th NSWRL Premiership. Second consecutive premiership. We had the Canberra Raiders finish in last position playing the wooden spoon. This was the Raiders' inaugural season as well. This is when they first joined. Uh, at the end of September through to the 9th of October, we had the 1982 Commonwealth Games held in Brisbane. On the 2nd of November, we had Gurners Lane winning the Melbourne Cup. And on the 30th of November, Michael Jackson released his sixth studio album, Thriller, in the United States, which go on to be the greatest selling album of all time, at 110 million units sold worldwide. I'm sure it's more than that by now. Yeah. Uh, do you want to hear about some people who were born, Timothy? No, I do. Okay. On the 10th of July, we had Sam Fisher, the Australian rules footballer. 30th of August, Will Davison, the racing driver. On the 13th of October, Ian Thorpe, the uh, swimmer. On the 17th of October, Nick Rewalt, the great St Kilda player. On the 13th of December, we had Anthony Kalia, the entertainer. But most importantly, Tim, this year, we had the great man. You were born, Timothy. How was. exciting. May 16th. This is born. you. You were right in here. I am now alive. Yes. This is no longer history to you. This is just life. Present. Yeah. Yeah. I'm still history for a couple more years. There's, there's a few things in here that I didn't realise I was alive to witness. Yeah, of course. Mm, we'll get to them soon. You saw Sydney's first night premiership. I, did I? Great. Well, yeah. I mean, somewhere in the background, yeah. I'm sure it was happening. But congratulations. Thank you. And happy birthday. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's get to some league news let's then, do shall it. we? Because it's football season, and that's the reason it's the time of the year that we love. We might start by going back to 1981, Charlie, because well, we, we, mentioned, have to. we mentioned the draft. There was a, there was a yes. draft. Um, and we thought, let's investigate this a bit more. So this was held on 8th of October 1981. All clubs participated and it followed what we do now with the bottom team having the first pick, but it was all about interstate picks. That's right, yeah. So yeah. how did this come up? How did, why, why did this become a thing? Um, because I wanted to get rid of clubs poaching, so club, it, club could only sign two players each, Yeah. which was similar. They had two Form 4s they could use, but this, this um, negated the whole Form 4 situation. And was it a bit of like the strong clubs which just kept getting stronger sort of stuff? It was trying to even things out a little bit? It was, yeah. yeah. Um, so the first, not, not the national draft we know of, it was the interstate draft. Yeah, yeah. so still, still going on with players moving around and, yeah. and, the, and the zones inside Victoria. But Yeah, and yeah. also because players were negotiating with different clubs, so it was essentially driving the VFL bankrupt and the club's bankrupt because they were all uh, trying to outbid each other. So this was hoping to even it up using the the, um, the United States example, I guess, with the NBA and yeah. their, their lottery that they have. And did players, the interstate players, have to what like nominate for this draft if they wanted to come to Victoria? Yeah, good question. Yeah, there's um, a lot of moving parts here. <laughs> well, not all the players actually played for like they were 
chosen, but they didn't all play. Ah, so maybe, okay. So not necessarily. Some did, some didn't. Um, so, f- for instance, the number one pick was Alan Johnson to Melbourne. And he ended up, he was from Perth in, in the Waffle. He played 135 games for the Dees. Oh, wow. But then Neil Craig got drafted to Footscray at number two. He didn't play any games for Footscray. So it's really th- like thoughtful of who, you, who you're picking up. You've got to make sure you're picking people who actually want to come as well. I suppose so, yeah. Some other notable players that got picked up in this draft was Ken Judge to Hawthorne at pick seven. Tony McGuinness at pick ten went to Geelong. Didn't actually play any games there. Hmm. Um, Ross Ditchburn to Carlton. Johnny Platten to Hawthorne. Oh, okay. Yep, didn't, didn't start there till later on. Chris McDermott to Fitzroy. Greg McAdam to Geelong. So a few players there who, quite a few who played some, a lot of games and quite a few players who played none. Yeah, okay. So a bit of a crapshoot. Really? Yeah, yep. But it's the VFL trying to be proactive and, and which fix makes sense. Up. You got to you got to change things up. You got to make sure things are going the right way. Yeah, a bit of equalisation sure. as well. I suppose. Yep. Um, some other things under a new VFL governing payments to players with under forty games experience. Under a new VFL rule, governing payment to players with under forty games experience was changed. So if you had played one to ten games, mm-hmm. uh, you were paid two hundred dollars per match. 11 to 20 was $250 a match. 21 to 30 was $300 a match. 31 to 40 was $350 a match. And after their 40th match, players could negotiate their own price with the club. Oh, okay. So that was set in stone for anyone. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. So I guess this is a continuation of that wage issue we had, which really perked up in the 70s, didn't it? Yeah, with um, players. Tottenham uh, with, and... Yeah, clubs yes, paying way players, too much, yeah. right? Yep. Um, for the first term, a lot of short-term thinking going on. Yeah. yeah. For the first time, the MCG had a scoreboard with a screen to show replays. Hey! The board cost $4 million, a figure met by the manufacturer Mitsubishi with a view to recouping their investment by controlling sponsorship on the scoreboard. Oh, wow. Mm. So they were like, well, don't worry, we'll pay for it, but we get any ad yeah. money coming through. Not a bad way to negotiate, I suppose. No. Um, and in February of... Jeez, that would have paid itself off in no time. Sorry. Surely. Commercially, Mitsubishi have done well. In 1982, in February, the Gold Coast Australian Football League launched a campaign to have their own VFL team based on the Gold Coast within five years. Well, it took them a little bit longer. Well, technically, it took them five years. Oh, that's true. Yeah. yeah. Um, not necessarily a Gold Coast team, but they had, there was a team playing there by 1987. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Yes. Um, now, the last two episodes, last two yearly episodes we've had, uh, we had the footy favourites... Last episode in 1980, 1980 we had the uh, the famous fans. <laughs> oh my god! Today, Charlie. Yeah. We've got a little commentary from each of the coaches' wives. Oh, brilliant! So we're going to hear from each of the coaches' wives just before um, we get stuck into each team. Yes. Uh, this is from an article written in 1982 from a- in April by Scotty Palmer. Fantastic. Yeah, called Can't. "Wives Cop the Flack." I can't wait to hear so about it. We're going to have a little, few, few little snippets with each of the wives. <laughs> it's going to be great. So let's work our way up that ladder. Let's do it. So let's start right down the bottom in 12th spot with uh, three wins and 19 losses, 68.1%. We have Footscray, captained by Kelvin Templeton and coached by Royce Hart. And here's what Royce's wife had to say. Royce does have terrific self-control. He's able to keep his worries to himself and not bring them home. If he's got a lot on his mind, he'll go into his shell and he'll be up before 5am for a run. On Saturday, we just leave him alone to get himself organised. 
Lovely. Um, some debutantes include Alan Jennings, Terry Love, Gary Warple, Ross Christensen, Lindsay Sneddon, Ian Rickman, Bruce West, and Simon Beasley. Tell us a bit about Simon yes, Beasley. Simon Beasley, fast on the lead and strong in the air and an accurate kick. Uh, Beasley was one of the most effective full forwards of the 80s. He first caught the... Uh, he started catching people's eye when he was playing at Swan's, Swan Districts where he topped the club's goal-kicking list with 97 goals in 1980 and 119 the following year. He crossed to Footscray in 1982. Yeah, um, actually... The dogs were projected to have a deficit of half a million dollars by the end of the season. Oof. So the VFL actually had to act as a guarantor for the Beasley transfer, which was around $120,000. Really? Yeah. Dog, we're talking dire straits now, aren't we? Well, so much so that there was fear that the dogs would be re- relocated to Brisbane by the end of the year, much to, much like what had happened to the South to, Melbourne. Yeah. So they've done it once now. So there's a precedent set. So the clubs it's, are fearful. Yeah, yeah. And there's st- there's all the chat, as we were saying in our special, there's all this chat about mergers and things happening. And so... Yeah, that's the 80s. Yeah. All right. Um, the first win for the Dogs was round four. They started hot against the Demons with 12 goals to four in the first half for a 55-point lead at halftime. But the Demons hit back hard in the second half. Their nine-goal final quarter getting them within reach of a win. Um, first gamer for the Doggies, Gary Walpole from Fish Creek, was... Uh, kicked the sealer and the dogs won by seven points. There was much singing and happiness in the dogs' room, but for the coach, it was just relief. They then lost the next five games. Following the round 10 loss and subsequently the disastrous start to the season, Royce Hart, how's this? Royce Hart was demoted to coach of the seconds. Oh, no. Nah. That's not a thing. Effectively sacked. Um, with Ian, Ian Bluey Hampshire taking over as senior coach. Surely you just sack him out. Like, that is, that's mm. just disrespect, isn't mm-hmm. it? The players can be dropped up and down. Why can't the coaches? It's really interesting. Yeah. No one's tried it before. No. No. No um, way. So, Bluey Hampshire taking over. Um, and within a few weeks, he had the doggies winning. Um, the Hawks jumped the dogs at Witten Oval in the first quarter with 12 scoring shots to four, but they only led by 28. Bit by bit, the Dogs were able to claw back into the game, but only for the Hawks to skip out again in the third quarter. But come the last quarter, the Dogs kicked eight goals to the Hawks' three points to win the game by 15 points in what was the biggest upset of the season. Beasley and Ross Christensen kicked five goals each in another great win. Um, And the Dogs' final win for the season was round 16 uh, at home against the Cats. Um, Simon Beasley was huge in this, helping them to a seven-goal win. The Dogs led by seven points at three-quarter time, but kicked 10 goals in the last quarter to run away with it. Calvin Templeton kicked 12. 12. 12. No wonder he had such a heavy price tag. Yeah. But unfortunately, Charlie, that is all the highlights for the Doggies. For the year. That's all they had. That's all they had. Well, very unfortunate. Uh, For the Doggies, we had... Not unsurprisingly, Beasley kicking the most goals with 82. Uh, and the Charlie Sutton medal in 1982 went to Ian Dunstan for the third time, second time in a row. Yeah, nice. Mm. Uh, so that moves us up the ladder to 11th spot where we have those Saints. With four wins, 18 losses and 71.7%. Captain by Trevor Barker and coached by as Alex Jezelenko. And here's what Jez's wife had to say. He's become the typical coach. He's starting to pull his hair out and get lines on his face. Alex this year had been so worried over the team and its injuries that he has taken up smoking again. I think coaches all cop too much from everybody. It's been very hard on the family, but I suppose it's all part of the game. Nice. 
Um, some debutantes for the Saints include Wayne Slattery, Peter Keel, Paul Armstrong, Daryl Cowie, Neil Park, and a cricketer by the name of Simon O'Donnell. Oh, yeah. Playing for the Saints. All right, so Jezelenko no longer playing. He's in charge as just the sole coach, and I'm guessing he wanted to get them up to scratch like he had Carlton in 79. Yeah. Um, so he put them through a pretty horrendous preseason training, really trying to flog them, so much so that they actually lost many players to injury. And they came into the season pretty underdone. Um, therefore, it's no surprise they lost the first three matches of the year. Round four, however, they started well against the Cats with Trevor Barker flying to take a mark in his comeback game. Uh, the very start of the game, he handballed straight to Saru, who slammed home the Saints first. This really set the tone for the day. They led all day, and though the Cats made a last quarter comeback, the Saints' defence held up to earn a 13-point win, their first for the season. Then they made it back-to-back against the Dogs, who were pathetic against the Saints mm-hmm. in the first half at the Western Oval. They also kicked a woeful four goals 11, and the Saints were led by 37. But the Dogs hit back in the second half and got within three points with more desperate play. It was the Saints' Jeff Saru, Wayne Slattery and Grant Thomas who helped them earn a 19-point win. Following this, however, was nine straight losses. Round 15 would be their next win, again against the Dogs. Uh, They trailed the Dogs by two goals late in the third quarter, but they rallied in the last quarter with eight goals to four, inspired by Barry Breen to run out the winners. Now, at the time, this game was thought to be Barry Breen's 300th game. But on retrospect and and looking back through the history archives, I think they found an extra game because this is actually his 299th game. Oh, really? Yes. Uh, In this game, Robert Mace kicked seven goals for the Saints. So round 16 was, in fact, Barry Breen's 300th game. (laughs) Luckily, he played one more. Yeah. This was a loss to Carlton. However, this is the last match to ever feature a St. Kilda Premiership player. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, That's sad, isn't Mm. it? I mean, it'll happen again. Yeah, it has to. A lot of averages. It has to. But for the time being, 1982 was the last time there was a St. Kilda Premiership player playing a game of VFL football. Wow. Um, Round 21, the Saints were far too powerful for the Magpies at Waverley. They added to their record books on their way to a 36-point win. The final score was 22-16-148, which was their highest against the Pies ever. Their 8-goal-7 second-half burst was their third-best quarter against the Pies since 1938. Super Duper kicked five goals and was great in attack, Mm -hmm. while Mark Scott finished with seven goals. So at least you can beat Collingwood at the end of the year. Yeah, exactly. Finish it off. Uh, So the lead goal kicker down at St Kilda this year was Mark Scott with 45. And the Trevor Barker medal in 1982 went to Peter Keel. There we go. Um, Which takes us up the ladder to 10th spot where we have the Pies. Uh, with, an, with again four wins and 18 losses, but a slightly healthier percentage than St Kilda with 85.5. Uh, captained by Peter Moore and coached by Tommy Hafey. And here's what Tommy's wife had to say. Tommy has become a lot more tolerant. I suppose he had to after 22 years of coaching. Those years have also made him tough enough to accept what the job offers and doesn't offer. No, he isn't as hard or in such a hurry. He's still his lovely self, however, and a fabulous father. It's a great name, Maureen, as well. Yeah. <laughs> Some debutants for Collingwood include Neil Pert, Jeff Miles, Chris Dolkin, Tony Beers, Tony Keenan, uh, Indigenous player Wally Lovett from Haywood, who I think we've already talked about in our Indigenous special last year when we talked about all the first Indigenous players. Yep. Uh, and Graham Teasdale came across from South Melbourne. Oh, that's Finally, good. I think he's been yeah. asking for a clearance for a while. For a while, he certainly has. But Charlie, things were not well at Collingwood. 
following the, the grand final loss of 81, we know Hafey was very critical of the players for accepting congratulations for coming runner-up. and Yeah. Like, he was very critical of them. That kind of estranged him from the players and they were kind of sick of it. They'd had enough of his hard taskmaster coaching style by then. Um, Hafey said he'd actually step down if they wanted him to, but they said, no, no, stay with him. So he re-signed with the club, but he had clearly lost the players. Yeah. The season started with a disastrous 88-point loss to the Cats and Hafey blasted his players for their lack of effort. They didn't care. Round two, they were lucky to actually turn their fortune around with a two-goal win over Footscray, Dacos and Davis kicking five goals each, but something clearly wasn't right. The players didn't care. They joked in defeat. No, no matter the ranting and raving Hafey showed them, their attitude to games did not change. Okay. So For- he's lost them completely. He's lost them. Following a round four loss to Richmond, their own supporters turned on them, hurling abuse at the players, which... We've seen that before. Between round three and ten, they lost eight straight games. Um, in round ten, the Demons beat them, inflicting them their record equaling eighth straight loss. Hey. Thought you'd like that one. Yeah, great. Um, this wasn't all the Ds had taken from the Pies, because around this time it was announced that Pies captain Peter Moore was going to be leaving for Melbourne the following season. And he threatened that other players would also follow suit. The president therefore had little other choice than to sack Hafey. Mick Irwin was appointed coach in the meantime, coming up from the reserves. Now, this was also a key time for a response group, the new Magpies, to challenge the boardroom. We know there's never there's never far from a boardroom challenge at Collingwood. If no, slightly skewed. No, exactly. Uh, led, it doesn't take much. Led by the strangely named Ronald McDonald. Um, the new Magpies came into China Challenge and, and take over. Mm-hmm. Of course, the Galbali name wasn't far off from this as well. David Galbali, part of the ticket. Yep, of his course. His name's never far off, him and Sharon. Um, while all this was happening, Mick Irwin actually helped the Pies snap their eight-game losing streak with a round 11 win over St Kilda. The dead cat bounce. Mm, it is. The Pies started slowly but got going in the second half with a 10-goal burst, which saw them earn a six-goal victory. Teasdale kicked six goals himself. They followed this up with another win over the Dogs. They kicked nine goals in the first quarter to effectively take the game away from the Dogs. Dacos and Shaw had 35 possessions each to lead the way. But just as things looked like they'd been righted, the wheels fell off well and truly. The Pies' losing streak extended to eight again. And with the Pies taking on the Saints in round 21, it was Mick Irwin who had the dishonour of breaking the Pies' record losses for a season. Sorry, in a row, as the Saints beat them by six goals. Nine losses in a row. Oof. So they've, they've equaled the record and then they've broken the broken record in again. the same season. His only consolation was a round 22 win over the Cats that stopped it getting to double figures. Shaw and Dacos again the architects in a five-point win over the Cats. But in the postseason, the new Magpies ticket came into power mm-hmm. and they dumped Mick Irwin as coach and started searching for a worthy successor to Tommy Hafey. Who will that be? Who knows? Mm. We'll find out. Well, I know. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Uh, so the lead goal kicker down to Collingwood this year was Peter Dacos with 58 and the Copeland Trophy in 1982 went to Peter Dacos uh, the, uh, the solitary diamond in a year of mm. a bit of a mess down at Collingwood lucky that I got a Dacos yes absolutely so that takes us up to ninth spot where we have the Cats with 7 wins and 15 losses 90.4% uh, captained by Brian Peake and coached by Billy Goggin, and here is Billy's wife. It's frustration that's been the main change in Bill. It's such a different life than being a player. Then he could get out and do something about things. 
Now he had to rely upon others. He's probably harder to live with, but we're all with him all the way. And another classic, like, 80s name, Nolene. Yeah, Nolene Maureen Nolene, beautiful. Love it. Um, so we've got some debutantes, including Phil Maddock, Damien Drum, who we know coached the Dockers. We've got Craig Cleave, Tim Darcy, and Andrew Buse. Yes. Busey, a tough, gutsy footballer who boasted plenty of energy and pace. Andrew Buse was recruited from the Cats from North Geelong. Uh, he made his senior debut in 82 and gradually developed into one of the foremost taggers in the game. Yeah. yeah. Um, who have we got as captain? Um, Brian Peake. Yes, Brian Peake. Um, coming in by helicopter, replacing Ian Nankervis. That's right. Um, round one, what a way to start the season. The Cats annihilated the Pies at Waverley. The Cats were fast and more disciplined than the Pies. Robert Neal and Peter Featherby ran right with 63 disposals between them. The later, Peter Featherby kicked five goals as well in what was an 88 point. Anytime you beat the Pies by that much is good, but I mean, what a way to start the season. <laughs> um, round three, the most entertaining part for the day of any fan who went down to watch the Demons play the Cats was Barry Crocker singing a new version of the Cats theme song through the sunroof of a Mercedes pregame. Because the Cats then won by 92 points, so yeah, not super exciting. No. Round five, a tightly contested match with the Swans at Cardinia Park came down to the final moments of the game when Kelvin Matthews took a mark in front of goal. Coach Billy Goggin was jumping in his seat. Matthews kicked the goal and the Cats won by two points. In round six, it was Cat Michael Turner who almost single-handedly defeated the Dogs. Turner had seven goals, same as the Dogs, um, who couldn't even score a goal in the first half. The final margin was 58 points. In round nine, Brian Peake inspired the Cats to a 46-point win over the Kangaroos. He set the example from the middle, and with the Cats' fierce tackling and lightning ball movements, they were able to keep the Roos out of the match. They then had a bit of a slump there with four losses in the middle of the season. In round 14, they were able to end this run of losses with a victory over St Kilda. The margin at eight points at the last break, but the Cats kicked seven goals, three to one goal in the final quarter to seal a 47-point victory. Peake and Blake were the two best for the Cats. Uh, round 17, one of the highlights of the Cats' 40-point win over the Blues was Michael Turner, who, after losing his right boot, marked 50 metres out and without replacing the boot, sent the ball casually through the middle <laughs> to give his side a valuable goal. Unfortunately for the Cats, this is their last win of the season. They lost their final five games. Oh. So a real fall from grace after yeah. um, finishing on top in 80 and making finals again last year. Uh, so the league goal kicker down at Geelong this year was Michael Turner with 40 and the Kaji Greaves medal in 1982 went to John Mossop with Michael Turner coming runner-up. Yeah, riding that form from last year's final series as yeah, well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so that takes us up to eighth spot where we have the Ds. Uh, Which is an improvement from last year's Big improvement. 12th. Big improvement. With eight wins, 14 losses and 90.4%. Captained by Robbie Flower and coached by Ronald Dale Barassi back in as we spoke about and here is uh, Ron's wife with something to say I didn't know Ron was a coach before he was a coach but I've seen him as coach of a top side and then one that happens to be struggling uh, I guess he's become more tolerant he's an exceptional person because you can tune out whenever he's at home it's I who lays awake worrying about football while he's asleep Cheryl Cheryl Barassi beautiful yeah love it um, alright so some debutantes for the Ds include Dale Dixon, Peter Tossel, Ted Fridge, Alan Johnson, the number one pick we talked about, yep. and David Cordner, son of Ted. Yes. 
Uh, now let's talk about Mark Jacko Jackson. He had a pretty good. I mean, look for all his crazy antics, he had a pretty good season. Yeah. In uh, in eighty one, he. Well, there's only one way you can get away with those crazy antics, right? And it's mm. by being pretty good. Now, despite a lucrative new contract for the season, Mark Jackson showed the first sign that he was going to be. He showed the first sign that it was going to be an interesting year for him by not even bothering to show up for the first session. Oh, good. A few weeks later, he was referred to club psychologist Rudy, Rudy Webster after clashing with Robbie Flower at training and then abusing Barassi when ordered to go and train with the under-19s as punishment. He was fined $1,000 for his antics, which involved threatening to hurl a brick at reserves coach Ray Jordan. <laughs> I believe in that incident as well. He punched Robbie Flower in the face. Great. Yeah. Uh, round one, the Demons were able to travel to Sydney to be the first side to take on the Swans at their hey. home grain, ground. They were also the Swans' first victims. I was... I was going to say, they probably set that up to to give the Swans oh, a win, 100% right? 100% they yeah. did. I mean, the other thing is, though, Barassi has been talking about wanting to coach in Sydney That's in the true. past. So maybe perhaps it was part of that as well. That like Put a hand up for it. Yeah. Maybe in the future he'll put, he'll coach. Maybe they, had, they were already thinking along those lines. Yeah. Round two, taking on the Saints at the MCG, Mark Jacko Jackson was reported in the first minute of the match. As St Kilda jumped to a handy lead at quarter time, it failed to break away over the next two quarters. Jackson actually put the D's ahead with his fourth goal 11 minutes into the last quarter. He kicked his fifth a few minutes later and his side were on their way. It had been 358 days since the Demons' last triumph. Even President Billy Snedden had to push his way through adoring throngs who were chanting Jacko's name just to get into the rooms. Following that game, Jacko pleaded that the blow he had given to uh, St Kilda's Roberts would not have stuck a hole in a stick of fairy floss. <laughs> but he was suspended for two weeks. Following this, five losses followed. Round seven, taking on the ruse, Barassi started with some unorthodox coaching. He put Robbie Flower at full back on Malcolm Blight. Yeah, that, that within, seems like a good, good match-up. Within 20 minutes, Blight had kicked three goals. So Flower was moved on to Kerry Good, who cooked it, kicked another. Uh, the Deeds were actually able to score freely themselves in this, but not as freely as the Kangaroos. The final margin was 37 points. Um, Gerald, Healy, Gerald Healy kicked eight goals for the Demons. Great. But it was a loss. Uh, round eight, after four straight losses, the Deeds shocked Premiership contenders Fitzroy with a seven-goal first quarter. The Lions were still in touch at halftime, but then the Demons piled on 10 goals to two in the third, which gave them a 10-goal lead at the last change, and they coasted home to a popular victory. After what would remain Melbourne's highest ever score at Waverley, Brassie said, I'm a very happy man. <laughs> Round nine against Essendon, Mark Jackson was reported for striking Ronnie Andrews with a clenched fist to the face in the first quarter, in the third quarter, claiming at the tribunal that he'd done it because he'd been stuck, struck in the testicles. Jackson had already had his nose broken in three places during the first quarter. He was banned for two matches. He was also lucky not, lucky not to be sanctioned by the league for hurling a beer can, which had been thrown at him during the game. He threw it back. He also gave Fingers the uh, the old two-finger salute. Yeah, beautiful. He was, however, fined by the club after the incident and he pledged to reform, saying, there'll be no more antics and carrying on. I will endeavour to be the best boy in the streets for the Stiffnecks. <laughs> God. Round 10, with Brassie taking on the arch enemy from the 50s and 60s, Collingwood, Melbourne held a narrow quarter-time lead. Then a five-goal second quarter gave his side a lead at half-time. In the last, they extended this to 29 points. The Pies piled on five in a row and drew to within a point, but Peter Crackers Keenan dominated the last quarter. He took a crucial mark on the goal line to keep the Pies at bay, and the Demons were able to inflict the eighth loss in a row to Collingwood. Um, David McGlashan kicked six in a seven-point win. And I, I feel like Brassie would have been very happy being the one to 
give them that eighth loss as well. Yeah, for sure. Round 12, taking on the Saints at Moorabbin. Mark, ja- Mark Jackson was forced to sit on the bench for the first quarter after his recent suspension, and the Saints led narrowly at the last change in an entertaining game before being swept aside by the more dominant Demons in the final term. Peter Crackers Keenan dominated the ruck. Brent Crosswell was back in the forward line, cutting the Saints to shreds and bringing his teammates into the game. It was Melbourne's biggest ever score, 138, and win at the ground, 43 points. At Moravin. I mean, 43 points doesn't sound doesn't like a very big like point. No. no, but I guess in the mud of Moravin. Yeah. And we can't imagine we play there that often either. So, yeah. yeah. Um, round 13 against the Cats, a wind-assisted seven goal to one first quarter saw the Demons shoot to a handy lead. And by five minutes into the second term, when the Demons had four goals in the breeze, the margin was 10 goals, and fans could scarcely believe it. The final margin was 64 points. Healy and Brian Wilson were great. The fans who had mercilessly booed the side just a few weeks ago treated them like rock stars. The rooms after the match were packed with jubilant supporters, treating the result like the opening salvo of the second coming. In round 14, taking on the Dogs at Waverley in a seesawing game, neither side could break away, trading the lead at the first three changes before the Demons turned for home three points ahead. The only mini-break of the day was in the third quarter when Melbourne were all as much as 33 points in front before conceding a string of late goals. A Simon Beasley goal levelled scores 16 minutes into the last quarter before Brian Wilson grabbed the lead back after a pair of running bounces. The Dogs were again were in front again shortly after before Chris Connolly kicked the winning goal. And for the last seven minutes, Melbourne grimly held on to the narrow lead, registering a third consecutive victory. Yeah. Don't get too excited because five <laughs> losses followed. Yeah. Um, round 20 against the Pies at Victoria Park. Jacko Jackson did his best work early with three goals in the first 19 minutes before being cut out of the game in the second. The Pies hit back then, but come the third quarter, Jacko returned with a vengeance with four more goals. Love it. His last goal involved holding Billy Picken off with one hand, tapping the ball and kicking it in one motion. The age described his performance as an ever-growing repertoire of slapstick, hijinks and harmless japes. <laughs> the Demons score of 25-18-168 is their 13th highest score and definitely their highest at Victoria Park. So getting some big scores. This season was a very high-scoring season. Yeah. Uh, round 22, with an $8,000 bonus and a trip to America on offer if they won the match, the Demons started to shake the Swans in the third quarter, by which time Jared Healy had only four goals. He booted another three in the third, and they were on their way to the US, winning by 15 points. How's that for some incentive? Love that. Um, so the club's end-of-season trip was to California and Hawaii, but an ambitious plan to bring six Americans to the club as a North American version of the Irish experiment failed when the first recruit, Glenn Ryan, from Pasadena, California, failed to make the grade after three weeks of intensive training. Really? Yeah. But some forward thinking there by Barras and the brass at... Um, at the D's? At the D's, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, sorry. Oh, sorry. I'm done. <laughs> sorry. Uh, so the lead goal kicker down at Melbourne this year was Jared Healy with 77. And the Keith Blue Truscott Award in 82 went to Stephen Ick. Uh, yep. And Robbie Flower was runner-up. Yeah, remember we talked about um, so Ick and Brian Wilson had come across from North Melbourne. Yeah. After um, Malcolm Malcolm Blight said he didn't want them at North Melbourne if That's he was going right. to return. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So there we go. Um, so that takes us up to seventh spot. 
where we've got the Swans. The Swans, the who are still technically South, South Melbourne, Melbourne Swans. Sydney Swans. Yes, um, playing out of Sydney. With 12 wins and 10 losses, 103.3. That North Air seems to have cleared them up a little bit. A little bit. Um, captained by Barry Round and coached, as we mentioned in our last episode, by Ricky Quaid. And here is uh, Ricky's wife. Sonia. Sonia. Sonia Quaid. Ricky hardly sleeps anymore. When he does, I hear him talking, and the other night we heard somebody walking around the house, and it was him. He reads every tidbit about football and coaching, but our family life hasn't suffered. He doesn't lose his temper despite big responsibility he's got this year. Lovely. All right, some debutantes include Jared Neesham, another ex-coach of the Dockers, uh, Trevor Musty and Jack Lucas. But the Swans debuted at the SCG in round one against the Demons. We talked about that already. Um, But the Swans were training in Melbourne and flying into Sydney. So the morning of their first match, Charlie, they hadn't actually even trained on the SCG. No, because they were still yeah, training, training at the Lakeside Oval. Yeah. So they flew into Sydney on the morning of their first match, having never set foot on the SCG. Um, it was possibly the game's first instance of a home ground disadvantage. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but they had a big uh, beat up for the game. Um, 25,000 red and white balloons were unleashed before the Swans... Um, as they ran through a banner reading Sydney Swans up there for Sydney on one side and Wade Ward's transport group on the other. Um, we know that Mike Brady rewrote Up There Kazali as their theme song, which, I mean, a very popular song, and I can understand why they did that, but Kazali played, what, 99 games at St Kilda, 99 games at, at the Swans. Yeah. Why, of all the players, have they picked him? To do it. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting just because they obviously they had the song, I guess. No Ron Clegg, no Bob Pratt, no Laurie Nash. It seems no Bobby Skilton. Yeah, it seems an odd Kizale, choice. Yeah. Um, there's a few a few celebrities in the crowd as well to watch the Swans' first game. Would you like to know some of them? Go on. George Negus, Darren Hinch, Jackie Weaver, Jimmy Hannon, and Peter Russell Clark. Hey. Okay. Um, So taking on the reigning Wooden Spooners Melbourne in front of 15,764 people, the Swans and Demons played a bit of a corker of a match, actually. With the Ds right in the game in the first half of the match, even in the fourth quarter, actually. But it was the defensive work of Barry Round who helped the Swans keep the Demons at bay. The final margin was 29 points, and it was off to Lady Fairfax's house to celebrate. Oh, that's right. Mm. The post-match soiree guests were treated to oysters and champagne, served from around a metre-high swan carved from ice, and they were subjected to the squawkings of a jazz band. For dessert, there was black forest cake and brandied marshmallows. Brandied marshmallows. Mm. Interesting. I read that from uh, Andrew Miller's Khan book. <laughs> Things starting... Properly for the Swans, the way the VFL Pretty administration would like it to have started. Definitely, they, absolutely. Because they kind of said, you guys really need to win this. Yeah. Round three, the Swans had a comeback win against the Saints uh, in the second half at Moorabbin after they had kicked seven goals to two in the second quarter. But Wayne Carroll, Silvio Faschini and Dennis Carroll brought the Swans back into the game. The final margin was 26 points. Round four, the Swans easily accounted for the Lions at the SCG with superior cohesive football. The Swans stunned the Lions with a nine-goal second quarter, which all but ended the contest. 13,617 people watched the Swans win by 56. Young star Silvio Faschino, Silvio Faschino with seven goals. Actually, let's have a quick listen to Silvio Faschino, who is who's going to explain to us how he how his life was travelling to and from Melbourne to Sydney to play games. Oh, yeah. Nice. So if I woke up at six o'clock in the morning living in Clayton, you've got to understand I'm not driving at that stage, so I'm getting a lift in. 
or catching a train. I'd leave home at, at seven. I'd make my way to Tullamarine Airport. From Tullamarine, get a, I think it was a nine o'clock flight. Hop on the flight, get into Sydney probably around you know, 10.30 or thereabouts. We would get on a bus. We'd have a team meeting by 12, get ourselves to the grounds, get ready. I think it was a 10 past two start. We would play the game uh, at 10 past two, finish around 4.30ish or thereabouts. In those days, we'd all get together as both teams. We'd have a chat after the game and a beer. And then we'd get back on a plane, make our way back to Melbourne. I'd be back at home. I would say it would be around 10 o'clock or thereabouts, ballpark. And the next day, I'd go to work. Round seven, the Swans took on the improved Bulldogs side who made the Swans earn it. But with Tony Morwood excelling as Ruck Rover, the Swans were too good and won by 21 points. Um, round eight, the Swans were all over the Magpies at the SCG for the first three quarters and took a strong 58-point lead into the break. But the Pies slammed on eight goals in the last quarter. But luckily, Barry Round and Wayne Carroll were able to help the Swans hold on by three goals. In round 13, the Swans rested Barry Round for their match against the Saints, and it took the Swans 10 minutes to get their act into gear. However, they took control in the second quarter and never looked back. They kicked 30 goals 19, 199, to win by 96 points, their highest score against St Kilda since 1919. John Roberts and Greg Smith kicked five each, while Greg Smith also helped himself to 44 disposals. Round 14, after a scratchy first half against the Lions, the Swans outscored Fitzroy in the vital third quarter against the Wind, and their little men, Colin Hounsell, Stephen Wright and Bernie Evans, played with improved vigour. They kicked six goals in the last to win by 34 points and give themselves a sniff, just a sniff of September. Uh, round 15, the Swans continued with their late-season push with a win over the Cats at the SCG. They won by 39. They beat the Bombers at Windy Hill in round 16 uh, with being able to withstand the Bombers' comeback to win by 33 points. Tony Moore would kick six goals four. It was only their third win at Windy Hill since 1954. In round 17, the Dogs led the Swans at each break in Sydney, but the Swans made it five in a row with an eventual 13-point win. Paul Moore were dominating. Round 18, they travelled to the always hostile Victoria Park, and the Pies started the better team, leading by four goals early before the Swans fought back in the second. It was all Sydney and... All South Melbourne in the middle two quarters. They built a 27-point lead at three-quarter time. However, they then had to withstand a furious last-quarter fight back from the Pies. A desperate last few minutes saw the Swans hold on by five points. Uh, in probably their best win of the year in round 19, in a low-scoring and inaccurate first half at the SCG against Carlton, the Blues led the Swans by eight points at half-time. But it was the Swans in the second half who took control with 13 goals to six to win to beat the reigning Premiers by 35 points. Their seventh win in the row, and they sat, six, they sat in sixth position just a game out of the top five. Yeah, wow. Unfortunately, they lost their last three games to miss the finals. But you'd have to say their first foray into Sydney is a Successful. success. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, the money's probably not there, and the VFL's still having to fork out a bit of money to keep them going. Yep. Um, but on the football field... They're, they're looking right. okay. Yeah, they're doing yeah, right. for sure. Um, so Tony Morwood was the leading goal kicker, unsurprisingly, with 45. Silvio Faschini just behind him with 42. And the uh, Bobby Skilton medal in 82 went to David Ackley for the second time. Um, which takes us up to uh, sixth place and our final non-finalist. And that was Fitzroy. The Lions with 12 wins, nine, one, nine losses and one draw, 102.5%. Uh, captain by Gary Wilson and coached by Robert Walls. And here is what Mrs. Walls has Aaron. to say. Erin. Erin Walls. Walls, beautiful. 
In the middle of the night, Robert will wake up now and start jotting down things he had remembered on note and paper he keeps by the bed. He takes losing a lot harder and now keeps a lot inside himself. Now, we've got three very big names debuting for Fitzroy. Mm-hmm. Gary Pert, Paul Ruse, Richard Osman. Yeah, massive. What a year yeah. for the Lions. Uh, so, let's, let's start from the start of that list, Timmy. So, Gary Pert, a powerful, highly skilled and superb aerialist. He could hold down any key position, but the Lions tended to use him most often in defence. Pert was a success from the time he first pulled on a Fitzroy jumper in 82 at the age of 16. Uh, Ruzi, imposing key position player at either end of the ground. He joined Fitzroy from Beverly Hills and made his VFL debut in 82 as a wingman, but it was when he was moved to centre-half back that he truly blossomed. And then Richard Osborne. So combining strength, athleticism and pace in ample measure, Osborne was a formidable key position footballer. Originally from Bulleen's Templestowe, he arrived at Fitzroy and made his senior debut in 82 as a 17-year-old. So a few tall, strong, key position style players as young men all coming in together. Very exciting. Absolutely. All right, so the Lions... Uh, we know the Lions had a pretty good season last year. Um, kind of back to their best now with David Walls at the helm. Um, they started well. well. Actually, they started okay. They drew with the reigning Premier's Carlton in round one, which isn't a bad thing. Good way to start the season to test yourself against the best. However, three losses followed, and they wouldn't, would not have been happy with this. Finally, victory occurred in round five against the highly rated Bombers. Quinn, Bernie Quinlan was dangerous all day, drilling two goals from 60 metres out and another fine snap from directly from a throw-in early in the third quarter. Uh, David McMahon iced the game with three majors in the last quarter as they won by 25 points. In round six, they trailed all day against lowly Collingwood at Victoria Park, but came home with a wet sail to win a close game by three points. David McMahon snapped truly in the 20 minutes at the 26-minute mark to grab Fitzroy a five-point lead. Les Parrish took a match-saving mark deep in defence to save the game just before the siren went. Um, the Magpie supporters, however, blamed umpire Glenn James for this loss, who they think he, he missed two calls in the last few minutes of the game. Mm-hmm. He had to be escorted by 14 police and mounted troopers <laughs> back to the bunker. Then later in the evening, he had to out-sprint those who were still waiting for him. Luckily, his car started first go. Jeez. Hmm. Round seven, an excellent two-goal victory over top of the ladder. Hawthorne saw Rendell dominating in the ruck with 45 hitouts and 19 disposals. And Clayton and Everett performed important tagger roles on Hawks stars Terry Wallace and Lee Matthews. In a tight last quarter, scores were level at the 23-minute mark before a fine handball by Thornton enabled McMahon to goal. McMahon added another from a free kick, free kick and, when young Roo, and then young Paul Roos snapped to seal the game. Round six, it was again Paul Roos who dominated with seven goals from eight kicks at full forward as the Roos easily beat, as the Roys easily beat St Kilda by 47. I've got to get Roys and Roos. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Round 10, Fitzroy led most of the day, but the Cats got to within eight points in the last quarter before a late flourish sealed the game for the Lions. They won by 29 points. Round 11 was a comfortable 52-point victory over bottom place Footscray. Around this time, rugged big man Gary Sidebottom Joined the Lions from Geelong. And what a recruit he was. Round 16, he came into the side for the match against Collingwood and made an impressive start. Um, he was he provided Fitzroy with much-needed height, physical strength and aggression in a 20-point win over Collingwood. 
Round seven, an outstanding effort by the Lions to upset the Hawks by 47 points at Waverley Park. Mick Conlon started with six goals. Matt Rendell kicked five, playing as a key forward. Round 18, the Lions easily won their third game in a row against the Demons by 70 points, but still remained 10 points outside the elusive final five. They probably lost too many games early on to really push yeah. the finals. Round 19, they had an easy win over the bottom place Saints. Gary Sidebottom was again impressive with 17 disposals and six marks. Round 20, they meritoriously won their fifth game in a row against the Cats at Cardinia, but finals were now mathematically impossible. Side bottom, excellent against his old side. Uh, they won their sixth game in a row and final game for the season against the Dogs in round 21. Uh, unfortunately, though, they missed finals. They were universally regarded as the best team outside the five in 1982, and coach Robert Walls was buoyant about their prospects for the 1983 season, given the emergence of a multiple of a multitude of young stars who we've already talked about. Club chairman Keith Weigard was equally optimistic, predicting the Fitzroy would aim for a premiership in 1983. Yeah, well, there we go. So the lead goal kicker down at Fitzroy this year... So the lead goal kicker down at Fitzroy this year was Bernie Quinlan with 53 and the Mitchell medal in 1982 went to Matt Rendell for the first time. Nice. Yeah. And that's, the, uh, that's our bottom seven. That's our bottom seven. I, I feel, you know, like apart from those, cut, those few right down the bottom, Collingwood St Kilda Footscray, Pretty good year. Yeah. As you said, some good scores, some good wins from everyone. Especially Fitzroy and Sydney, who both finished on 12 wins. That's a big jump up. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. We've got, you know, 3-4-4, four, four, but then, you know, it does jump up. And 12, you know, 12s, Fitzroy especially, 12 and a draw, and the draw against a, a top side is is pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so... Before we finish, Timmy, we need to talk about the, uh, the Escort Cup, the 1982 Escort Cup. And, uh, geez, let me tell you, it was an interesting year, this one. Well, Is everyone still involved? No. And okay. that, it's got slightly less unwieldy. Okay. So we had 34 teams in the previous two years, 1980 and 1981. We've scaled it back to 18 teams, which okay. is all 12 VFL clubs plus the top three Sandful and Waffle clubs. Okay. That um, makes more sense. So... Reduce the matches from 35 to 17, yep. which makes a lot more sense, right? Yeah. Um, so it was, again, very, very unbalanced in terms of preference for the VFL teams. Two, there were two qualifying matches between the Sandful and the Waffles, second and third ranked teams. Everyone in the VFL just gets to go through. Of course, the VFL controlled. Um, and the... State rep teams were moved to their own round robin competition worth twenty five thousand dollars, and named the Escort Shield. Okay. So, had a bit of chat about you know the Swannies, you know joining in now. Um, There's a bit of chat about you know the fact that they're now the Sydney side coming in, which is exciting. Um, But let's let's talk about the uh, the. The games itself. So we've got the qualifying games. Swan Districts beat Glenelg and Norwood beat South Fremantle. So both the Waffle teams there beat the, the Sandful teams. So going through to the to the rounds, we've got uh, Fitzroy defeating Geelong, uh, Carlton defeating Port Adelaide, Melbourne defeating Hawthorne, North Melbourne beating Claremont, uh, Swan Districts beating Collingwood, 
Richmond beating Essendon, St Kilda beating Footscray, and South Melbourne beating South Frio. So at this stage, we only have one non-VFL team yeah. through the Swan Districts. Um, then we had, in the quarterfinals, Carlton beating Fitzroy, North Melbourne beating Melbourne, uh, the Swans beating St Kilda, and Richmond defeating the Swan Districts. And I want to talk more about that game a bit later. Okay. Uh, then the semifinals, we had North defeating Carlton and the Swannies defeating Richmond. So the grand final, uh, which was postponed a, a week due to a WA Vic State game being scheduled for the same day in Perth, was between the Sydney Swans, they're called here, the South Melbourne yeah. Swans, and North Melbourne. Uh, and the Swannies came out in front of 20,000 people at Waverley and just from pillar to post had them done. Wow. So in their first year in Sydney, they've managed to, to take out a night premiership. And there's a great photo on here, Timmy. I'll turn it around and show you. Of Barry the, Round holding out the cup? Uh, no. Well, that, that's not here. But of the, the champions, 1982 AFC champion Swans, flag flying over the Sydney Town Hall. Nice. Um, and there was something earlier said that Alan Aylett was very excited. Um, this was actually the first time they presented a premiership flag to the night premiership winners. Okay. And Alan Aylett uh, would be very pleased to see the flag carrying we'll an AFC that. logo flying in Sydney. Um, so there we go. Now, I wanted to go back and talk about um, that the Swan Districts Richmond game mm-hmm. because there was a, it was a very uh, there was a bit of a interest going on there. Okay. So fixture changes and split rounds, you know, going on it plagued the night series because they had to move stuff depending on what was going on in different yeah. leagues, actual premiership points games and stuff. And the match was originally. Um, scheduled for the 1st of June, but everything was pushed back a week because of an interstate game. And so it was moved to the 8th of June and that was fine. But then um, then some things happened between South Melbourne and St Kilda. So they, they were set up to play in a quarterfinal against each other, but they were also meant to play two days before that in a VFL game. So they wanted to move things around. So without consulting Swan Districts, the AFC said, oh, we'll change the Richmond Swan Districts game to that night. (laughs) And that was in the middle of a week where they were to play, they were first on the ladder in the waffle. They were to play second on the ladder and third on the ladder on the weekends in between there. So they'd have to fly to Melbourne to play and go back. So... They basically said, no, we jack, we jack of this, we're not going to play. Yeah. And they for, they threatened to forfeit, but then I don't know why they'd agreed to send a full-strength team, but they ultimately chose to renege on this deal and <laughs> sent an, a hugely inexperienced squad of reserve and Colts players. Um, oh, dear. They line up, the Swan Districts lineup had an average age of just 19 years and had played a combined total of 69 senior games. Hmm. So by half time the the they were only down by fifty four points. They'd managed to close it up a little bit, but then the second half the floodgates opened and Richmond piled on twenty four goals seven in the second half Jesus. for a record breaking hundred and eighty six point win. Richmond full forward Michael Roach led the scoring with a ten goal haul, and this is 
incredibly impressive, Tim, considering he only entered the game at the 14-minute mark of the third quarter. <laughs> so in a quarter and a half, he kicked 10. Wow. Um, so they defended, they defended their actions by saying, you know, they were offended by the high-handed attitude of the VFL, so they sent a team of reserves, and the AFC then announced a month later that Swan Districts would be banned from the night competition for the next two years. Well, i tell you what, it worked in their favour because they won that match against South Fremantle the following week yeah. and they won the flag. Well, it should be said that it, it was a positive for the club. They avoid midweek matches on the other side of the country and focus solely on the waffle where they won 82, as you just said. They also won 83 and 84. There you go, so. so there we go. Yeah. Uh, there are a few jumper clashes. Um and as we said, Michael Roach led the goal scoring. So yep. very interesting there. Uh, so there's the night series. Nice. Good for the Swannies to get some, uh, some silverware. silverware. Yeah, absolutely. Very exciting. And uh, looking forward to talking more about the, uh, the top half of 1982 with you next week, Timmy. Indeed. Until then, hooroo. The history. Yep. To find out more about the Kick to Kick team and the sources we use, visit our website, www.kicktokickpodcast.com. You can contact us via email at kicktokickpodcast at gmail.com or find us on Twitter and Instagram under at kicktokickpod. Thanks so much for listening.